The news is a shit show these days, and we're here to give you a break from the white supremacist media bullshit by bringing you the shitty news so that you can feel less like shit because you know the people discussing all the fucked up shit give a shit about you and the shitty situations you deal with every day. So shit, pour yourself a glass and settle in for Father Teresa's Wine Cellar. You've seen this story and the updates first on WUSA 9 for a week now. Five human fetuses found inside of a home on Capitol Hill. An anti-abortion group claims it intercepted a delivery of fetal remains between a D.C. clinic and a Baltimore waste service. We know there are still a lot of questions about this. So WUSA 9 investigative reporter Nathan Baca, he went to a press conference today to get us some answers. And Nathan, what are you learning? Well, Lorenzo, the video shown by the anti-abortion group was of an extremely graphic nature. We are not going to show those images that the group has posted on social media. What I can tell you is that they purport to show the visceral aftermath of third trimester abortions. Progressive anti-abortion uprising activists hold up a poster filled with names they gave to more than 100 fetuses they claim to have intercepted March 25th from Washington Surgery Clinic which performs abortions. During the five days they were under my stewardship, the 115 victims of abortion violence <coughs> were given a funeral, funeral mass for unbaptized children, and the 110 have been given a proper burial in a private cemetery by a priest. WUSA 9 was there Wednesday when DC police took what it said was five fetuses from activist Lauren Handy's Capitol Hill neighborhood home. DC police have not confirmed activist claims the fetuses came from Washington's surgery clinic. That is the same clinic nine members of the group faced federal charges for blockading during an October 2020 protest. Activists did not disclose where that burial took place. As for how they got the fetuses, activists say they convinced a van driver with the Curtis Bay Medical Waste Company to hand over a box of biohazard waste. That box, say the activists, was filled with fetal remains. We asked the activists if any independent doctor examined the remains to back up their claim the fetuses were born alive or whether they were aborted for emergency medical reasons to save a mother's life. Our goal was to make that happen, um, but because we the days were going by and we were unable to find a pathologist or some kind of specialist that could verify the gestational ages of these children and the cause of death, um, that's when we made the determination to turn them over uh, to the homicide unit. DC police and the medical examiner's office say the five fetuses recovered from the Capitol Hill apartment last week were aborted in accordance with district law. While the clinic is not answering questions, Curtis Bay Medical Way says it does not deal with any fetal remains and tracked down all biohazard boxes picked up March 25th, adding the activist claims are false. Jonathan Darnell is one of the nine activists facing federal charges for the 2020 Washington Surgery Clinic blockade. You're going to hear a lot of uh, Christian and pro-life celebrities condemning us for making waves, for taking risks. There are a lot of people in positions of power in the pro-life movement who think that the only effective way to fight abortion is to stay quiet <laughs> and to not offend anyone. D.C. police say they have no official updates on this case. A police source tells us that they do have an open investigation focusing on the circumstances of exactly how the anti-abortion activists obtained those fetal remains. Lorenzo? Yeah, I don't think this will ever make sense. Nathan, thank you. Following closely, an anti-abortion activist awaiting trial for blocking access to a D.C. clinic is now accused of planning two more clinic invasions while out on bail. Prosecutors have shared a recording of Lauren Handy directing others to enter two Maryland clinics for what she called an opportunity rescue. Handy made headlines last March after she admitted to storing more than 100 fetuses in her Capitol Hill apartment. No charges were ever filed for that, but Handy is one of 10 defendants charged with using rope and chains to block the Washington Surgery Clinic in 2020. Now, last year, Handy was released on the condition she doesn't enter any health clinics except for personal medical appointments. Now, in court today, a federal judge said Handy appears to be, quote, skirting that order and promised to tighten the conditions of her release. A woman who made headlines last spring for storing fetal remains in her Capitol Hill house is set to stand trial today. Not for those remains, though, but for blockading a D.C. abortion clinic. WUSA 9 investigative reporter Nathan Baca has been tracking Lauren Handy's indictment for more than a year and reports from the federal courthouse this morning. This is Lauren Handy. WUSA 9 cameras captured her sitting curbside in front of her Capitol Hill apartment in March of 2022. D.C. police had just raided her home saying they found more than a dozen human fetuses in containers. But Handy is not facing trial for that. 
She's facing federal felony charges for this. Abortion is the most painful type of murder. In October 2020, Handy and nine other co-defendants walked into Washington's surgery clinic on F Street Northwest. An indictment says they used chains and ropes to block the entrance. Handy and fellow members of Progressive Anti-Abortion Uprising claim the clinic, which offers abortion services, quote, killed babies after they were born. The clinic denied these allegations and was never criminally charged. Handy and the others accused face more than 10 years in federal prison if found guilty of the clinic blockade. We know images get right to the heart and the victims need their story needs to be told. This is Handy talking with WSA 9 last year. Those images Handy is speaking about is video her group took after claiming it intercepted fetal remains from a medical waste truck outside that same F Street clinic. The medical waste company denied ever handling any fetal remains, and police never mentioned the source. Handy and the other defendants hope to show the video and other images at their trial. Part of their defense is all their actions were to defend the lives of the unborn. Monday, a federal judge denied their request on two major grounds. First, because the federal charges Handy faces are from 2020, and her fetal remains video was shot nearly two years later. Second, the judge wrote, a defendant may not don a vigilante's hood to insert themselves into a situation of their own making and subsequently claim defense of a third person to justify their actions. Jury selection begins this morning. The court expects this trial to last at least two weeks. Reporting from the U.S. District Court, Nathan Baca, WUSA 9. When five former Rankin County deputies and one former Richland police officer entered Jackson's downtown federal courthouse Thursday morning, they were free men. But after being read their charges by District Judge Lakeisha Greer-Isaac, they then moved to District Judge Tom Lee's chambers where they were put in handcuffs. Their lives forever changed for trying to cover up the January 24th assault of two black men, Michael Corey Jenkins and Eddie Parker. Gathered on the porch of the house, to discuss how to cover it up. What indifference, what disregard for life. Following the full day of court hearings, U.S. Attorney Darren LaMarca revealed that the officers planted Jenkins and Parker with methamphetamine from a previous case, as well as a BB gun that was used as part of the torture the officers conducted that night. The charges brought against the six men include conspiracy against rights, deprivation of rights under the court of law, conspiracy to obstruct justice, and obstruction of justice. The actions of these defendants not only caused significant physical, emotional, and psychological harm to the victims, but also caused harm to the entire community who feel that they can't trust the police officers who are supposed to serve them. United States Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark found the incident report and the case to be unfathomable and reinforce that justice will be brought to any form of police misconduct. The defendants in this case wanted to send a message to the victims that they didn't belong in Rankin County, but we have a message of our own. Abusive law enforcement officers will not be tolerated in any of our communities, and we will pursue justice and accountability whenever and wherever police misconduct rears its ugly head. All six defendants will enter guilty plea deals August 14th. Judge Lee has set tentative sentencing dates for November 14th through the 16th. Reporting from federal court in downtown Jackson, Joseph Doring, three on your side. Thanks for watching our YouTube channel. Follow today's top stories and breaking news by downloading the NBC News app. All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thousands of service employees across Los Angeles are. Yes, lots of uh, service employees across Los Angeles. Uh, let's um, take a little dancy poo on over here. Uh, this is Mr. Williams' Laborhood uh, news and comment. Want to move on over to the uh, Mississippi Supreme Court, and I'd also like to uh, check out more news. Phoenix Kaliter is handling swap work. Don't worry, wherever I link our, you know, where I put our regular podcast material and um, and content we produce, 
the swap cast because Phoenix Kalita does a sex workers outreach project now a full service workers outreach project that material will still come through this feed so you won't miss out on Phoenix Kalita but um Phoenix Kalita does not really have time for wine cellar media anymore it's it's real all right so Mississippi Supreme Court won't remove uh, Favre, Brett Favre, a football man. Uh, they won't remove uh, Brett Favre from a lawsuit over misspent welfare money. Hmm. Interesting stuff. So this is uh, coming off the Associated Press article up by uh, Emily Wagster Pettis. Emily Wagster Pettis. And Emily comes on to tell us that the Mississippi Supreme Court, well, they said they will not be removing the former NFL quarterman, Brett Favre, as a defendant in a civil lawsuit that seeks to show me more advertisements. Excuse me while I try to read the article. And um, a uh, civil lawsuit that seeks to recover millions of dollars of misspent welfare money meant to help some of the poorest people in the United States. A panel of three justices issued a brief ruling this here past Wednesday. Right now it's Thursday. And uh, they denied an appeal from Favre to be removed. His attorneys said in written arguments in May that the Mississippi Department of Human Services is making utterly meritless legal arguments in suing the Pro Football Hall of Famer. So on April 24th, running back a couple of months, the Hines County Circuit Judge Faye Peterson denied his request to be removed from the lawsuit, which has more than three dozen people or businesses as defendants. Mr. Favre asked the Supreme Court to overturn Peterson's decision. Millions of federal welfare dollars, millions for low-income Mississippi residents were squandered on projects supported by wealthy or well-connected people. From 2016 to 2019, the Department of Human Services lawsuit filed in 2022 says money from the Temporary Assistance to Needy Families program was improperly spent, including on projects that Favre supported $5 million for a volleyball arena at the university that he attended so that his daughter could use them Negra's welfare money to play volleyball on when she went to school. That is not verbatim from the Associated Press. That's simply just what I remember from listening to this story some months ago. $1.7 million of welfare money. It went toward development of a concussion treatment drug. Maybe he could have fundraised that. Use your own paper stack. No criminal charges have been brought against uh, Mr. Favre, although a former department director and other people have pleaded guilty to their part in the misspending. In their filing to the state Supreme Court, Mr. Favre's attorneys argued that the Department of Human Services officials and Nancy knew... That is someone's name. I'm not saying that a person named Nancy knew something. It is a person whose name is alliteratively Nancy knew. All right. So in their filing to the state Supreme Court, Favre's attorneys argued that the Department of Human Services officials and Nancy knew who directed a nonprofit organization with human services contacts, quote, concocted and carried out a scheme to direct welfare money toward a volleyball center and that Favre was not part of the effort. Attorneys for the state responded that Favre took $1.1 million in TANF money from Nancy New for 
speeches he never made. <laughs> well, in 1996, Bill Clinton signed welfare to work. That nigga got welfare money. Didn't even got dang work. And I said, dang. This is a clean language program. I am a clean language guy. It's very normal. Let me, um... Brett Favre's attorneys argued the Department of Human Services is suing the NFL Hall of Famer to deflect from the department's own role in allowing fraud, and they filed multiple sets of papers seeking to have him dismissed from the suit. State attorneys wrote in March that Mr. Brett Favre's attorneys had given the court a long press release rather than a legal argument in trying to get him out of the lawsuit. The state attorneys wrote in May that the Mississippi Supreme Court does not grant appeals based on whether a defendant is famous or on speculations about the plaintiff's motives or, in fact, disputes. All right. Interesting, they said uh, the attorneys gave him a long press release. (laughs) Well, that's what you're going to get from that particular class of people, folks. Let's move it on forward. Thousands of service employees across Los Angeles are on strike this afternoon. The 24-hour walkout could affect certain essential services. KTLA 5 Sarah Welch is live at City Hall where a big rally was held earlier today. Sarah. Hi, Sam and Glenn. Good afternoon. Yeah, union leaders say today is an example of the essential worker, and without them, L.A. cannot function. Today, the nation's second largest city was without many essential services, including garbage pickup, and union leaders say this is what you get when you disrespect these public sector employees. Thousands of L.A. city employees are taking a stand. Against the CAO's office and demanding... They're much due respect. Service Employees International Union Local 721 represents some 11,000 city workers, many of them taking the day off for the one-day strike. Sanitation workers, gardeners, lifeguards, engineers, alongside traffic enforcement employees and boat operators at the port. No ships coming in, no ships going out. City pools and animal shelters are also closed. Essential services taxpayers pay for and depend on. Nobody. At least six people are dead as raging wildfires sweep through the Hawaiian island of Maui, reducing historic towns to ash. And now President Biden is sending all available federal assets to help in the firefight, including the military. The fires are being fueled by violent winds from Hurricane Dora hundreds of miles away from the islands, decimating homes and businesses on Maui and the Big Island. Those winds, along with low humidity and dry vegetation, are creating an unstoppable force. KTLA's John Fanolio here in studio with the latest on these devastating fires. John? Sharon, Micah, at this hour, the flames are still not contained. We're now learning of at least two new fires breaking out on Hawaii's Big Island. And tonight we are seeing apocalyptic scenes in Maui as homes and businesses are consumed by explosive wildfires, forcing residents and visitors to evacuate, some even running for their lives to the ocean to escape the unstoppable blaze. Tonight, paradise on fire. Rapidly spreading wildfires, chewing through portions of Maui's western edge and further inland through the island's mountains. In the historic town of Lahaina, the explosive fire rapidly consuming homes and businesses, displacing hundreds of people. This is the closest I've been to hell, like, ever, and I've been in some tight spots. Damon McDonough and his neighbor forced to plunge into the ocean to escape the flames as the blaze swept across the shores of the seaside town overnight. The wind started burning us from, you know, everywhere, and we had fire falling on us, our clothes were catching on fire. It was burning our faces. We had to, like, just put water, go into the water. It was just so insane. The boats surrounded us, they were exploding. How is this real? The two men, some of the dozen or so people rescued by the Coast Guard, Authorities confirming at least six people killed. The flames, fueled by 60-plus mile-an-hour wind gusts from Hurricane Dora churning in the Pacific hundreds of miles away, along with high temperatures, low humidity, and an abundance of dry vegetation. 
The powerful winds grounding firefighting aircraft throughout much of the day. The blaze, which broke out early Tuesday morning, knocking out power, cell service, and 911 operations for thousands. Local hospitals overwhelmed by people with smoke inhalation and burn injuries. Hundreds of homes and hotels evacuated as thousands of residents and tourists try to flee only to become stranded on the island's main airport. Lieutenant Governor Sylvia Luke issuing an emergency declaration and activating the National Guard. We never anticipated uh, in this state that a hurricane which did not make impact on our islands will cause this type of wildfires. Wildfires that wiped out communities, wildfires that wiped out businesses, wildfires that destroyed homes. In Maui, some 2,000 people are taking shelter at the island's main airport. Hundreds of buildings have been damaged or destroyed, but the full scope of the damage remains unclear. Tonight, we've learned that search and rescue operations are currently underway. We're awaiting an update from officials in Hawaii at midnight our time. I'll send it back to you guys. And we continue to track it. John, thank you. Andy. Mm -hmm. Now, when will this end? Tonight marks 100 days mm -hmm. since the WGA rider strike began. Is the union any closer to a deal with the studios? KCAL News reporter Lori Perez joins us live now in Burbank with the impact and where things stand right now. Lori. Well, Juan and Pat, when I spoke with the mayor of Burbank earlier today, he told me the impact has been nothing short of devastating on locals and local businesses. That being said, he said the community is largely supportive of the strike. Across the street at Bob's Big Boy, workers told me union members fill the restaurant every weekday. They show their union card and their dine-in meals are paid for by Drew Carey. It's a brutal turning point. For 100 days now, riders have been walking the line instead of working. The fact that we're now at this point and I'm looking at second jobs, that I have friends who are losing their homes or having to move or figure out rent or, you know, it's, I, I never thought that we would be here at this point. Writers Guild of America members on social media shared why they think it's worth it. For my fellow writers to be compensated and treated fairly for our work. For the opportunities every member of a writer's room needs. Industry experts say last week's failed meeting between negotiators for the writers and the studios said a lot. The usual rule is uh, uh, those who have the goal make the rules and the unions have decided that that's not how it's going to work this time. And since 160,000 SAG-AFTRA actors joined WGA on the picket lines last month, their demands of the studios are even louder. Both unions are striking for better pay and job protections as streaming and artificial intelligence change the industry. But they're losing money every day in their quest. In California alone, film and TV production accounts for more than 700,000 jobs and nearly $70 billion dollars in wages. That's money they're not earning and not spending in studio communities like Burbank, where the mayor is a SAG-AFTRA member himself. Cafes, the restaurants, the um, coffee shops, the nail salons, the dry cleaners, all of those um, places that do business, not just with the studios, but with the employees um, who work there, all of that money is dried up. When I told him our expert predicted the strike could last until January, he broke down. I can't imagine why they would do that. It's like they don't care. They don't. I hope it doesn't go to January because this is this is devastating. I have people calling me, asking me for homeless services. People who were like writers on big name shows. And they're like, hey, I gotta sell my house. I read this morning, Billy Porter has to sell his house. His concerns echoing those of LA Mayor Karen Bass, who told KNX Radio she's in constant contact with the studios and the writers trying to bring this to an end. There are the thousands of ancillary businesses that are all impacted. A key foundation to our economy cannot go on not working with thousands of people unemployed for another 100 days. Now, the night before the failed talks last week, the studios sent out a press release saying our only playbook is getting people back to work. We are live in Burbank. I'm Lori Perez, KCAL News. Back to you. All right. Devastating, Lori. Thanks so much. Now this All right. And uh like to uh, pop back in, uh, sharing another uh, 
thing that I find interesting with you. I hope you find it interesting as well. Uh, looking over here uh, with an article up by uh, Lauren Neergard. Outstanding. Uh, a firefighter and a uh, a firefighter and a paramedic. Uh, well, the, all right. So that's one guy who had both of those jobs, right? They start the article sounding like a person walks into a bar joke, right? A firefighter and a paramedic by the name of Mike Camilleri mm-hmm. once had no trouble hauling heavy gear up ladders. Now, battling long COVID, he gingerly steps onto a treadmill to learn how his heart handles simple a simple walk. A uh, quote from a uh, physical therapist says, a quote, this is like not a tough guy test, so don't uh, fake it. End quote from the physical therapist Beth Hughes. You see, somehow a mild case of COVID-19 set off a chain reaction that eventually left uh, Mike Camilleri with dangerous blood pressure spikes, a heartbeat that raced with slight exertion, and episodes of intense chest pain. He is far from alone. How a uh, how profound a uh, toll COVID-19 has taken on the nation's heart health is only starting to emerge. This is years into the pandemic, as you may have noticed. Quote from a Dr. Susan Chang, a cardiologist at a Cedars Sinai Medical Center. Susan Chang, Dr. Susan Chang says, quote, We are seeing effects on the heart and the vascular system that really outnumber, unfortunately, effects on other organ systems end quote hey chain reactions you say there doctor <laughs> what is up doc they continue it's uh not only an issue for long covid patients like uh, mike camilleri for up to a year after a case of covid19 people may be at increased risk of developing new heart related problems anything from blood clots and irregular heartbeats to a heart attack even if they initially seem to recover just fine. Among the unknowns, who's most likely to experience these after effects? Are they reversible or a warning sign of more heart disease later in life? Quote from Dr. Zayed Al-Alai, all right, from uh, Washington, Washington uh, University. Dr. Zayad says, uh, we're about to exit this pandemic as even a sicker nation because of virus-related heart trouble. And, and um, <clears throat> they also said they will likely reverberate for generations, end quote. Heart disease has long been a top killer in the nation and the world, but in the U.S., heart-related deaths had fallen to record lows in 2019, just before the pandemic struck. Ain't that something kind of special? This is new tonight. People who live in an Alexandria apartment complex tell us they've been without water for two days, and they also say they don't have AC right now. This is at the London Park Towers Apartments. We headed to that complex as soon as we heard about all of this. Our crew spotted people filling up water bottles from a fire hydrant. Others were taken to a nearby recreation center to use the facilities. We're still hoping like the water will be resolved like sometime soon. Because this is ridiculous. Like two days, especially this community, there are a lot of kids and a lot of elderly. So it's tough. Virginia American Water tells us the problem is a private water service line belonging to the apartments. No other customers are impacted right now. We've reached out to the property owner for some kind of comment, but we haven't heard back yet. Someone who lives there says they just got an email from the building's management company saying they are working on a fix. We will keep you posted. Lawmakers today heard over two hours of public comment on the lack of funding for a school choice program aimed at helping low-income kids attend private schools. 8 News Now education reporter Joshua Peguero has both sides of the issue. 
Governor Joe Lombardo was asking for more than $3 million in COVID relief funds for opportunity scholarships. And today, lawmakers are still in a meeting that began this morning considering his request. We've been fighting the fight since day one, and we'll continue to fight the fight as we move forward. This was a battle, Governor Lombardo. There was never, ever, ever, ever a discussion that... And Democratic leadership had been waging for several weeks. I can see how much better the education and opportunities are for my son. And it came to a head on Wednesday as dozens of people lined up to give their opposition or support for opportunity scholarships. Let's keep this money right where it belongs and do the right thing for our students. Let's not do something foolish and throw away the money, this money to fulfill a campaign promise. If you really want to help low-income families, then you will fund the opportunity scholarships. The program gives low-income students money to help them attend private schools. Lombardo stated 700 kids could be impacted if funds aren't added. Wealthier families can flee a failing public school and choose a better environment for their children through charter or private school options. Less fortunate families are relegated to whatever school is assigned to them. Everything we've heard today, all the statements, just reinforces the need to uh, give more funds to our public schools. Now, Democrats have previously criticized the governor for not addressing this during the legislative session, a comment the governor has said wasn't accurate. Reporting in the newsroom, Joshua Peguero, 8 News Now. Joshua, thank you. The Opportunity Scholarship Program started back in 2015, and students who are eligible could receive up to $8,700 tuition. Voice your vote. Arizona Senate race might be getting more crowded. Reports out of Washington say Carrie Lake is getting ready to run with an announcement expected in October. Here's ABC 15's Mark Phillips with how this might change the race. The audience may be new, a farming community northwest of Columbus, Ohio. But Carrie Lake's stump speech over the weekend sounded a lot like Arizona 2022. They call me the most dangerous politician in America. Lake revisited themes familiar to Arizona voters, rigged elections, defending her legal battles over a lost election, and the second coming of Donald Trump. I'm voting for him with every ounce of my being. I want him in office. If the speech in Ohio is a prelude to his Senate run in Arizona, longtime Arizona political watchers believe Kerry Lake needs to change the script. The biggest challenge that Lake faces is the fact that now independents and unaffiliated voters are the largest group in the state of Arizona. 34% of Arizona's voters are either independent or unaffiliated. It's the largest voting bloc in the state. They are incredibly influential in the general election. No single party can win uh, statewide election alone. But Paul Ben says Lake's views on election fraud and banning early voting are in stark contrast to the views of most independent voters. Republican political consultant Stan Barnes thinks Lake will have learned that lesson from her loss in the governor's race. If Carrie Lake comes into the race, I'm sure she will talk a little bit about election integrity. I don't know that she'll make that her number one issue. It hasn't worked for her. On Wednesday, a Lake spokesperson said, when the rigged election trampled on the sacred vote of Arizonans and stole Kerry's victory, they only strengthened her movement. If Kerry decides to jump into the Senate race, she will win. As of today, Pinal County Sheriff Mark Lamb is the only announced Republican U.S. Senate candidate in Arizona. Congressman Ruben Gallego is the Democratic candidate, and yet to be determined is incumbent independent Kirsten Sinema. Cinema has not committed to a second term yet. Mark Phillips, ABC 15, Arizona. The thing they do need to get back on their feet is an ID. New tonight, our Eleni Dow shows us how one organization is making it easier for those experiencing homelessness to get proper identification. In order to get off the streets, there are essentials people experiencing homelessness need. One of them is an ID to have an address to be able to sign up for certain services. Well, I couldn't do anything really. Shantina Crane has been trying to get herself back on her feet. She's been living in an apartment. I'm doing a little bit better. It's hard, but I'm working on things. That's why I'm trying to get my ID. <laughs> 
Now it's easier. The Human Services Campus in downtown Phoenix is a one-stop shop for people experiencing homelessness to get all of their resources. Before, they had to take a bus ride down to the Motor Vehicle Division to get an ID, but now it's only a few steps away for them, and they get that ID for free here at the Homeless ID Project. In partnership with the organization, MVD employees are working in-house and issuing temporary IDs. And the actual card will get sent in the mail to wherever people need. The majority of them going to the Human Services Campus. Having MVD here is, is I mean, it's just huge for our clients. It removes the hurdles of having to hop on that bus to get an ID. We know some cases it didn't happen. We'd see some people that would come in to see us. We'd give them a voucher and a bus pass, and two months later, they'd come back and see us again. The Homeless ID Project has seen exponential growth over the years, helping people get necessary documents such as IDs and birth certificates. Before the pandemic, they issued 7,500 documents a year. Just last year, 12,000. We're on a pace to do 17,000 total documents this year. As Shantina signs her name to get it printed on her ID, she's happy to get a piece of plastic that will help further her journey out of homelessness. In Phoenix, Melanie Dow, ABC 15, Arizona. We've got an eye on your money as it all relates to our never-ending extreme heat that Scott's talking about. Power bills, they are coming in every bit as hot as the weather right now. You've already heard about turn up the thermostat, turn on the fans, leave them on. But what about changing power providers? A lot of talk about that, but can that really save you any money? Our Jason Allen looked into that for you today. Summer has left North Texans with two unappealing choices. Sweat through it, or if you want to cool down, get ready to pay up. That second choice may have you raising the thermostat, switching on fans, switching off lights, and wondering if another company can power up your house for less. It's definitely worth looking at changing your plan. You probably just don't want to do it today. According to Rebecca Bridges with electricityplans.com, they've noticed prices for plans increasing anywhere from one to four cents a kilowatt hour just in the last day as companies adjust to the higher prices they are paying in the statewide heat wave. They're backing off. They're, they're taking the foot off the gas pedal right now in terms of acquiring new customers. But generally, prices are lower than last year. So even paying a penalty to end a power contract early might be worth it if you do the math to see when you can break even. Take the most recent bill you received, say it's $300, divide it by the number of kilowatt hours that you used during that month and figure out what the average rate was that you paid. Last year in North Texas at this time, it's about 18 cents a kilowatt hour. Now it's actually closer to about 13 cents a kilowatt hour. When you figure out the savings, let's just say $40 or so a month, you have to figure out it may take you four to six months to make up for the penalty you just paid to switch plants. And only you can decide if it's worth it. And for some people, it might not be worth the hassle. Because, you know, the, they don't have that much longer left in their contract or they just don't really have the cash to pay an early termination fee right now. Waiting until fall may be the better choice when prices and temperatures, hopefully, begin to fall. In Fort Worth, Jason Allen, CBS News, Texas. School may be in session, but of course the summer heat has not gone anywhere. Bus riders at New Caney ISD have been battling the heat the first week of school. KPRC 2's Corley Peel is live with the concerns that parents have. Corley. Keith, school got out around 2.50 p.m. and we checked the weather and it was 104 degrees. So imagine being on a crowded school bus at that time. And despite majority of the buses having air conditioning, parents say their kids are still coming home exhausted from the heat. Sweating through shirts on hot school buses has parents like Jamie McAdams concerned. My biggest concern with all of this for the most part is heat stroke with our children. It's hot just standing out here. Could you imagine having over 81 students all crammed in a can? McAdams says her daughter rode the bus from New Caney High School and came home sweating. She gets off the bus. She's very dizzy. She is very lightheaded. She is nauseous. She is very hot. These photos are of bus 406. The district says this bus and none of the New Caney High School buses have been over capacity this week. Capacity for the buses are between 76 to 82 students, depending on the bus, according to New Caney ISD. 
McAdams says students are waiting roughly 30 minutes on the bus before leaving. District officials say most buses are leaving within 20 minutes and the wait times are expected to improve. You've got the door open. That's even more heat coming in. And then you have everybody packed into a sardine can. According to New Caney ISD, there are a total of 116 buses in the district. Six of them are without AC. Those buses have the shortest routes, 30 minutes or less. The district says there may be AC issues from time to time, but when an issue arises, maintenance fixes it as quickly as possible. McAdams hopes the conditions on the bus will improve. And the district says those school buses that don't have AC are allowed to have their windows rolled down. But those buses that do have air conditioning, they require those windows to stay rolled up to not allow the hot air to get in. Officials say students are allowed to bring water on the school buses. They also encourage them to bring any mini fans and wear lightweight clothing to help with the heat. Reporting live from New Caney ISD, Corley Peel, KPRC 2 News. Corley. Well, that is real nice and good, ain't it? <clears throat> so, as we continue on, um, getting this little episode up and running here. Um, looking over here at the folks at PBS News. An interesting article up by uh, Seth Borenstein. Scientists are wondering if global warming and El Nino have an accomplice in fueling this summer's record-shattering heat. The European Climate Agency, uh, Copernicus, reported that July was one-third of a degree Celsius um, hotter than the old record. That's uh, six-tenths of a degree of Fahrenheit. I'm sure that is the most simple math you can possibly do. That's a bump in heat that is uh, so recent and so big, especially in the oceans and even more so the North Atlantic, that scientists are split on whether something else could be at work. Scientists agree that uh, by far the biggest cause of recent extreme warming is cl is uh, climate change from the burning of coal, oil, and natural gas that has triggered a long upward trend in temperatures. A little over a century there. I think you have uh, literature, uh, material, uh, published research material going back to roughly somewhere between 1912 and 1918. Mm-hmm. You see, um, a natural El Nino, a temperature, uh, a temporary warming of parts of uh, p the Pacific that changes weather worldwide, adds a smaller boost. But some researchers say another factor must be present. Quote from the Copernicus director, Carlo Bontempo. Nailed it. Uh, quote, what we are seeing is more than just El Nino on, to on top of climate change, end quote. One surprising source of added warmth could be uh, cleaner air resulting from new shipping rules. Another possible cause is 165 million tons, 150 million metric tons of water spilled into the atmosphere by a volcano. Both ideas are under investigation. The cleaner air possibility, looking at a Florida State University, uh, a climate change uh, individual by the name of Michael Diamond, says a shipping is probably the prime suspect. Prime, the prime, the prime suspect in this Amazonian capitalist hellscape. Maritime shipping has for decades used dirty fuel that gives off particles that reflect sunlight in a process that actually cools the climate and makes some of the global warming. In 2020, international shipping rules took effect that cut as much as 80% 
of those cooling particles, which was a kind of a shock to the system. The sulfur pollution used uh, to interact with low clouds, making them brighter and more reflective. But that's not happening as much now, Yawn said. He tracked changes in clouds that were associated with shipping routes in the North Atlantic and North Pacific, both hot spots this summer. In those spots, and to a lesser extent globally, Yawn's studies show a possible warming from the loss of sulfur pollution, and the trend is in places where it really can't be explained as easy as easily by El Nino. Quote, there was a cooling effect that was persistent year after year, and suddenly you remove that, end quote. Now, uh, Diamond calculates a warming of about 0.1 degrees Celsius, uh, 0.18 degrees Fahrenheit, by mid-century. That would be the 19, I mean, I almost said 1950s, the 2050s. Which I shouldn't have to worry about that. Well, I would have two thousand. Well, I would be like in my seventies. Yeah, I'm not seeing that time. If I am, I'll still be chiefing. A separate analysis by climate scientist uh, Zeke Housefather of Berkeley Earth and Pierce uh, Forster of the University of Leeds projected half of Diamond's estimate. Um, it's an interesting ongoing thing happening with these uh, these nerdy McScience men. Uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, switch it up, flip it up real quick like this. And then we can uh, swing it on back like that. Where is the skibbity flea bop? Ah, there we are, matey. So let's see if we can't... Uh, Get ourselves in on the old uh, Jim Hightower there. Whoop-a-doop. Haven't pulled up a Jim Hightower clip in some time. Uh, yeah, just really uh, podcasting is different than what it, uh, what it used to be. Hmm. Where is that darn uh, deal there? Oh, man. There we are. How about a little bit of good news for a change? Specifically, good news about news. The demise of local newspapers has been a very depressing story in the last few years, with several thousand of them gobbled up by Wall Street profiteers. Those money powers loot the publication's assets, then callously shut down each community's paper or reduces them to empty news shells. So, that's that. Local print journalism is passé, right? Wrong! High-spirited, community-minded subscribers in places like Glen Rose, Texas, Hamburg, Iowa, Portland, Maine, and International Falls, Minnesota, are humming an upbeat tune of regeneration that could be titled, Not Dead Yet. In Maine, for example, five of the state's six daily papers and 17 weeklies were sinking under the ownership of an investment group, but all were recently bought by the National Trust for Local News, a nonprofit started two years ago. The trust is turning each publication over to local nonprofit owners and helping them find ways to become sustainable. Another new effort called Cherry Road Media has bought 77 rural papers in 17 states, most from the predatory Gannett conglomerate that wanted to dump them. Cherry Road's business plan is simple, old-time genius. Return editorial decision-making to local people and journalists who know the town. Be an active presence and participant in community affairs. Make the locals responsible for sustaining their town's paper. And most important, reinvest profits in real local journalism that advances democracy. This is Jim Hightower saying, in both of these new initiatives, the foremost mission is to serve the common good of the communities, not to pad the wealth of a few distant financiers. To learn more about these models and how you might implement something similar in your town, contact Institute for Rural Journalism, ruraljournalism.org. The Hightower Radio Lowdown is made possible by you subscribers to Jim Hightower's Lowdown on Substack. Find us at jimhightower.substack.com. All right, so let's uh, head on over in another direction here. 
Ben, let me uh bring up my little mini cam. There we are. All right, Carrie Lake, an individual that um if you've been following the wine cellar, we hopped on Carrie Lake quickly, partially because I recognize Carrie Lake's face and the awkward way in which Carrie Lake delivered the news when covering a lynching many moons ago. And I mean many moons ago, like this is like 2014. And there was a lynching in Arizona, and Carrie Lake, of course, was still a uh, broadcaster presenter there with the local news. Uh, over here on Yahoo Entertainment, they tend to import articles, you know, lease, whatever you're doing. Article up by Andy Ortiz, which was the name of someone in my neighborhood when I was a child. Um, Arizona governor swipes at Carrie Lake's Senate run. Quote, she would have to admit she's not actually governor. So the uh, Arizona governor, Katie Hobbs, uh, sees a possible bright spot in the idea of her former opponent, Carrie Lake, potentially running for the U.S. Senate. It would mean Lake finally concedes. <laughs> Been a while. Uh, appearing on CNN on Wednesday night, Katie Hobbs was asked her thoughts on Lake's attempt to represent Arizona again, this time on a higher level, considering the fact that Carrie Lake spent months trying to block and deny the election results of 2022 and to this day still has not admitted her loss. Quote, I think it would mean she'd have to admit it's not actually the governor, and she uh, chose to launch a Senate bid. <laughs> um, now, when she did lose, the Daily Show host at the time, Trevor Noah, joked that losing was what she wanted all along so that she could keep undermining the process of democracy. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Let's... uh. Let's head on forward if we can. The World Health Organization is tracking a new COVID variant that we've been telling you about. It's causing more COVID cases across the country than any other variant. Right now, it's being called EG5. It is a subvariant of the Omicron strain. In just the last month, EG5 cases doubled across the globe. An updated COVID booster, though, is expected by fall. The booster is targeted against XBB, and which is the strain of the Omicron family that EG5 is related to or comes from. So potentially it should protect against EG5 as well. Doctors say you should continue to wash your hands and they're also still suggesting that you wear a mask in crowds. Case against 16 Republicans for election fraud brought by Democratic Attorney General Dana Nessel generated more arraignments today in a Lansing courtroom. Political reporter Rick Albin here now to tell us about the first phase of what may be a long process, Rick. This could take a while, and there's going to be a lot of court action. The final nine people accused of being false electors by the attorney general were arraigned on the same counts that the seven others had previously. Two of those who were arraigned earlier included the mayor of Wyoming, Kent Vanderwood, and former Michigan Republican Party co-chair Michonne Maddock. The charges stem from activity alleged to have taken place in Lansing at what was then the Michigan GOP headquarters. That's where the AG says the 16 individuals worked together to file false certification that they were electors for the state of Michigan instead of Democrats who received more votes. The Republicans all cast their votes for Donald Trump, though those ballots were not accepted by the U.S. Senate that certified the 2020 election for Joe Biden. All 16 are charged with the same eight counts, including one count of conspiracy to commit forgery, that's 14-year felony, two counts um, of another uh, of forgery, which is also a 14-year felony, one count of conspiracy to commit uttering and publishing, yet another 14-year felony, one count of uttering and publishing, uh, another 14-year felony, and one count of conspiracy to commit election law forgery. That is a five-year felony. Two other counts of election law forgery, a five-year felony as well. Each will have to appear, though not in person, for a probable cause conference on August 18th, and all are expected to be in court for a preliminary exam on August 24th, Brian. 
Yeah, you know, Maui is such a special island, a special community with so much history, and there's nobody better to demonstrate that than people who've lived there, including the folks at Shane Boys in Lillian. <laughs> Sean Sutton and his family opened this restaurant a few years ago. They brought Hawaiian food with them when they moved to the mainland in 2011. Sutton's grandfather and cousins are still in Maui, safe but saddened. This was a home. There's their car. Hurricane winds spread grass fires through historic neighborhoods and cultural sites, destroying the centuries-old destination, Lahaina. Tonight, local Red Cross crews are on standby should officials there request more help. Airlines, including Southwest and American, are adding flights to the islands to get tourists out. Sutton says he knows the community will rebuild. The spirit of the people of Hawaii is, is very strong, but, you know, not everyone can do things themselves. So I do think it's really important, you know, to get the mainland involved. Sutton and Hawaiian officials are both pushing people to the Maui Strong Fund, which has already raised more than a million dollars. Sutton says trees and leaves may be gone, but the island's bones remain. In Johnson County, I'm Matt Houston. Another thing, you know, the last time that you and I spoke was when you were running for governor, of course, we're running against Carrie Lake. There's reporting that she is preparing to launch another run to represent Arizona. This would be for the Senate. She still has not conceded to you, of course, in the other election <laughs> that you won. What do you what do you make of her trying to represent your your state again? Yep, and this is uh, Katie Hobbs on CNN a few hours before this uh, program. Well, I mean, I think it would it would mean that she would have to admit that she's not actually the governor if she were she, if she chose to launch a Senate bid. Unprecedented wildfire. Whoa, that was a little rowdy. But it would mean that she would have to admit that she's not actually the governor if she were she, if she chose to launch a Senate bid. Um, I think Arizonans are tired of her continued um, election denialism and conspiracy theories, and that's something else that they'll get their chance to have their say on next November. Unprecedented wildfires are destroying the Hawaiian island of Maui, where now at least 36 people have been killed and others are still missing. The fast-moving fires were fanned by the winds of Hurricane Dora in the Pacific. We spoke with families who say they have lost everything. The disaster is one of the deadliest U.S. wildfires in recent history. Widespread devastation that not only burned down homes, but the entire seaside town of Lahaina. I think that grief, uh, you know, when you grieve a person, there's, there's, it's some, it's one way, but when you grieve a town, a whole entire town due to a natural disaster, like a hurricane, which is just crazy. Um, it's just a different type of grief. Maria Clark says her daughter and extended family live in Lahaina, many of them losing everything, escaping only with their lives. They were watching a helicopter coverage of the area and they were able to look and zoom in and that's how she was first saw that her home was gone. It's killing me right now. Uh, we just lost our house again, twice in four years. Lahaina resident Mark Steffi says his family lost their home during a hurricane four years ago. And after rebuilding, his home has been destroyed again. He describes how fast the flames swept over the historic town that was once the capital of the Hawaiian kingdom. The uh, fire was in our backyard 10 seconds after we saw the flame, flames up on, at the top of the hill. We ran downstairs, grabbed our dogs and cats, and we lost the cat and the dog because uh, just... Confusion. Mass evacuations continue. President Biden earlier today approving a disaster declaration offering federal aid. More than 11,000 people on the island of Maui are still without power, including hundreds of tourists that are still trapped and living out of their rental cars on the side of local roads. You came here just to like sleep at a resort and you end up sleeping in the back of a Jeep. It's not ideal. Maui hospitals are overwhelmed with patients suffering from burns and smoke inhalation. Witnesses say they constantly hear the sounds of explosions while looking at fire in the sky. As I was escaping myself, you know, you could see fire raining down from the sky. And Const hearing explosions while looking at fire in the sky. Overwhelmed with patients suffering from burns and smoke inhalation. Witnesses say they constantly hear the sounds of explosions while looking at fire in the sky.
deal. Maui hospitals are overwhelmed with patients suffering from burns and smoke inhalation. Witnesses say they constantly hear the sounds of explosions while looking at fire in the sky. Dang. As I was escaping myself, you know, you could see fire raining down from the sky and all of a sudden things were igniting everywhere all around you. Right now, the primary needs for the people in Hawaii include cell phone service, food, and fuel. Tourism is a major driving factor for the island of Maui's economy. Locals say it now it may take them years to recover. Glenn Corrine, good morning. Heartbreaking to see the images coming out of Hawaii. More than 30 people have been confirmed dead, with dozens more still missing or left injured. Officials now saying that close to 300 structures have either been damaged or destroyed. A race to get out. Thousands of Maui residents and visitors forced to flee as wildfires took the Paradise Island by surprise. If anybody's still out here, it's time to go. We feel very sorry for the people. People lost their houses. We really do. Those, those people don't deserve it. They're hardworking and, yeah, I'm very emotional. This was a home. Burned out buildings and cars now part of rubble where historic buildings once stood in Lahaina, a go-to destination for tourists. Just to fly over Kihei and continue see, to see the, the um, burning flames and, and see firsthand the impact on Lahaina and Lahaina town was just so shocking and devastating. Before and after satellite images showing how much the smoke and fires have consumed the historic town. The fast-moving flames, fueled by 60-plus mile-an-hour wind gusts from Hurricane Dora, churning in the Pacific hundreds of miles away, coupled with high temps, low humidity, and an abundance of dry vegetation. The National Guard utilizing Chinook helicopters to conduct water drops Wednesday, a day after the massive flames broke out. Because the winds were so high, we couldn't provide the helicopters to do the water bucket support. While thousands have been evacuated, more remain. Many scrambling to get on flights at the airport, airlines bringing more flights to the region. Today we got about oh, a little over 11,000 travelers out of Maui. Um, if we add in the, the airline personnel, it's 11,400 or so. Toll standing at 36, but officials saying that number could rise. Many flights to the region have been canceled. Authorities saying that their priority right now is to get as many people out as possible. So if you do have plans to travel to Maui, you're encouraged to postpone them. That's the latest here in the KTLA News Center. Carlos Salcedo, KTLA 5 News. As you can see, Alexander City crews are still on scene with water. They've even brought in some portable toilets because although services have been restored, there is a boil water advisory in effect until at least Friday. Officials say they're not leaving until the running water is deemed safe. We met Fatima Kumara in the parking lot of the London Park Towers apartments. She was on the phone begging her employer to allow her to keep her job as a caretaker for the elderly. I say, please help me. I say, give me one more chance. Without running water and air conditioning, Kumara says she was unable to go to work for the past three days because doing even the simplest tasks was a struggle. We don't have water. We have to go to other people's house to take water. They open the pump. K Apartment Communities, who manages the 458-unit complex, says that while the City of Alexandria Fire Department was conducting an annual fire hydrant test on Tuesday morning, a private water main ruptured in multiple locations. The company adding in a statement, this was an unexpected and unfortunate complication to a test that has been completed annually for many years. This father of six says the past few days were like living in a war zone. Like I have two kids home born like with asthma and this humidity and this weather and no water and also the situation of the bathrooms and kitchen, no food, no shower. Alexandria city officials say their work at the apartment complex is not done. The city is going to remain on site and then also make sure that the, the building does everything it can to do right by the residents. Some tenants say they've contacted K apartment communities to inquire whether they will be compensated for the last three days, but we have yet to hear from the management company. In Alexandria, Virginia, Rafael Sanchez Cruz, W. The World Health Organization is tracking a new COVID variant that we've been telling you about. It's causing more COVID cases across the country than any other variant. Right now it's being called EG5. It is a subvariant of the Omicron strain. In just the last month, EG5 cases doubled across the globe. An updated COVID booster, though, is expected by fall.
the booster is targeted against XBB and which is the strain of the Omicron family that EG5 is related to or comes from. So potentially it should protect against EG5 as well. Doctors say you should continue to wash your hands and they're also still suggesting that you wear a mask. All right. So, folks, that is what I have bringing to the table here. And that is a mode with which I can um, bring the news and still, like, maintain my general labor capacity. capacity uh, as far as, like, outside labor, working a job outside the house, uh, you know, inside the house, I handle the laundry, yard work, uh cat litter you know general sweeping mopping life right the the life chores that never end the daily stuff right and um and mixing that all in and still trying to get a podcast episodes up and running and uh trying to bring folks uh news that's worth knowing about you know so much of uh political news is just really so celebrity gossip and more so about the uh, the pundit, like because now we have independent pundits. They're like super business people. Like you're just looking at a brand with a partisan label on it. It's bad, <laughs> and I don't want to be a part of that. I like this uh, wacky little thing that we have here over in the wine cellar, and uh, we'll keep doing that, and we'll do it this way as we can. You know, I'll wake up in the morning, do as much as I can toward it get off work in the afternoon and do as much as I can toward it. All right. And, um, yes, those news clips that I play, they're straight from smaller news outlets, right? Like you're hearing KTLA, ABC nine, you know, uh, Fox 11 in Texas or whatever the hell it is. Right. And I think that's a good place to just get straightforward, boring reporting, and we'll be following the same stories. Like, I'm going to be following fires just for good now, right? Because it's always summer somewhere. Everywhere on the planet is going to have a fire season. Like, when this one for the Western Hemisphere is in the can, right? I think Australia is going to pick up where we left off there. And whatnot. So, I'll be ready for that. And we'll have more commentary on such stories. All right. But for now... My goodness gracious, I got up at 2 a.m. to do podcast work um, with uh, SWAP, Sex Workers Outreach Project, and uh, house chores off to the shift, get back from the shift, house chores, more tasking, and it is now 8.30 p.m., so 2 a.m. to 8.30 p.m., I should probably rest, that may be the safe way to go about things. And please be as safe as possible wherever ye be.